here worshiping with us, especially if you uh, maybe are with us for the first or second time, want to know a little bit more about the church, there's boxes on the back there you could check, and we'll get with you on uh, anything, any questions you have. For the rest of us, uh, there's an opportunity to uh, record prayer requests, and the pastor and staff would be faithful every Tuesday morning to uh, take those to the Lord in prayer. So please take advantage of that, and we'll and put those in the offering plate as you leave today, all right? Well, let's continue with our worship that reminds us that God's love for us is so vast. This is a great, great song, how deep the Father's love for us. Sing it with us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all
Let's remain standing just a moment and read. Actually, we're reading today's text that Brother Philip would be preaching. Let's read it together. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Sovereign over us. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our morning with a love that casts out fear. You are working and are waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. Scripture, 
because just in a minute we're going to be singing about this. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And what is the end goal? To the praise of his glory. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. Even what the come before you and we just are overwhelmed of your majesty and we give you praise that we are no man or woman in this world is in control you and you alone are in control Lord may we as the body of Christ be in one accord in that we are all in when it comes to seeing your glory on this earth, glorifying you in everything that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, has, or you may think past tense, have you ever been told by your teacher to put on your thinking caps? Anybody? Have you been there? Well, I need you to do that today, okay? Pastors earn their bread because God has inspired hard texts. God has given us hard texts so that we will depend upon God. Remember, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Notice we use the word all Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16, we're reminded it's all Scripture. 
But you know that hard texts keep us dependent. God has to help us understand the word. I hope you know and believe that. But hard text also should keep us humble. Uh, we're only here for a moment. I think you realize that you are finite. You are limited. God is infinite and unlimited. Our own hindrances that we bring to the table right now in our hearts, in our minds, often keep us from the truth. Now, I told you last week that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, most scholars believe that that is the culmination of the teaching of the entire book of Ephesians. Verse 10 says that our God will sum all things up in Christ. We can take it to the bank. Our God will total up all things. In other words, Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of all things. And our God will do that. However, when you get to verse 11, scholars are going to tell you that these are the most difficult verses, perhaps in the entire book of Ephesians, to translate. They're not easy. Difficult text and difficult principles, ideas, themes should not discourage us. They should actually encourage us to labor in the Word. Y'all know anything about laboring in the Word? You'll understand that that's the primary reason you have a pastor. Now we think that it's to visit people, bury people, do weddings. But that's not what the Bible says. I do all those things, right? But the fact of the matter is, the number one thing I'm called to do is preach the Word. That's what preachers do. We don't preach the Reader's Digest. We don't preach anything else. We preach this holy book. In succession of all the pastors who have come before us, who have faithfully preached the Word of God. So today... I need for you to let the word steep in you. I need for you to let the word of God soak into your life. We say we believe that thy word is truth. And this is the word of God, right? We say that. I'm encouraging you to let it steep and soak. So today is going to be somewhat of an academic, spiritual exercise. But it's also going to be a spiritual, academic exercise exercise. Okay, we're going to do both of those today. We need for our God to use our brains and our hearts and our minds, but we also need to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God who gave us the Word of God. It's inspired, and God gave it to us. So, here's what I'm going to do first. I'm going to deal with the difficulties of the text first, and then I'm going to tell you how it flows from then on out. So, really, there are at least two major difficulties that you see in the Greek text. And then there are some minor ones. And we'll pick up the minor ones as we go through. Are you guys ready? Here's the major one. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you, also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, <clears throat> how many of you noticed some pronoun shifts as I read? When we read verses 11 and 12, there was the pronoun we. When you get to verse 13, there was the pronoun you. And then when you get to verse 14, we're all brought together with our. Did anybody notice that as we read? You didn't labor in the word. 
you didn't, right? You, you should see that in the text. So here's the deal. Some scholars hone in on <clears throat> the fact that they believe it was Paul's direct intention to vacillate by saying we, meaning who? Jews first, right? The Bible does say salvation is of the Jews. And then, of course, by extension, the Gentiles grafted in through the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about this for a moment. That in 11 and 12, Paul is dealing with Jewish believers. However, when you get to 13, there is a translation, a transition to you, meaning Gentiles. But then when you get to 14, we're bringing everybody together, Jew and Gentile alike. Red and yellow, black and white, doesn't matter who it is. Everybody who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are united in Christ, his inheritance. The list goes on. So, do we think that that's a possibility? Well, absolutely, because when you get to chapter 2, verse 11... Then here's what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called to the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, he's going to start talking about Jews in Christ, right? You're not made a, a Christian if you're a Jew by circumcision. Neither are you made a Christian by circumcision if you're a Gentile. What you must have is circumcision of the heart. You have to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt that Paul is going to address that. However, I have to move a little bit to the right of most or some scholars and say I'm not convinced at this point in the text that Paul is actually making an effort to reference Jew and Gentile in the movement of the pronouns. Why? Number one, he has consistently used various pronouns all the way through the text until you get to verse 10. He's consistently used you, we, our. So I'm not convinced. In other words, the shift in pronouns is so subtle that we wonder even if the Ephesians would have gotten it. It's so subtle. It's so subtle in the way he does it. I think we just means we. In the sense of this, verse 13 I think would be a shift, but not to Gentiles as a whole, but how about the Ephesian believers who trusted Christ? Right? That's the immediate context. So I would read it like this. In him also we have obtained or have become an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, all Christians, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, Ephesian Christians, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Now, I hope you can all see that there is labor that goes into the preaching of the word. There is. And that's what your pastor is called to do. Preach the word. Now there's a second major difficulty in this text. And it happens to be in the verse 11 at the very first. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Many translations will say received an inheritance. If you're looking at a copy of the Word of God, which I would always encourage you when you come to church, you wouldn't go to a ball game without a glove. You wouldn't go shoot hoops without a basketball. Why don't we come to church without a Bible? Which is way more important than any of those things I just listed, right? Now, I know you're taking hope in the fact that we're going to put it on the board. But do you have a Bible when you go home? You make the preacher think you read the Bible when you go home if you at least bring it to church. <laughs> Amen? All right. Okay. Now, it's obvious when you read in the ESV, look at that. In him we have, still got your thinking cap on? Still got it on? It's obvious when it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, that the English translators have made a decision for us 
what they think this means. Is that not obvious? But folks, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible in the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Old was written in Aramaic and Hebrew. So, you can't know all the options of what this means unless you look into the Greek text. Here's what the word literally means. It literally means to cast lots. Or to choose by lot. Or to assign a portion. It also can mean to be appointed by lot. Or destined or chosen. But here's the real difficulty in this passage. This phrase, received an inheritance, or the NAS, obtained an inheritance, is only used one time in the Bible. Right here. And it's actually a compound word in the Greek. So, what is the difficulty? How do we usually translate a word or find the meaning? We normally do it by context and usage of the word. You know this in English. As a matter of fact, when you look up a word in the dictionary, that's what they're defining that word by. They're defining it by what's called common usage. Here's the deal. We've got a difficulty here. There is no common usage of this word. It is a compound word in the Greek, and this is the only place it's used. So how are we going to translate it? So here's the possible range of meaning in the Greek text of what this can mean. The NAS translates it, obtained an inheritance. I just read to you out of the ESV, which says, have obtained an inheritance. So, having obtained an inheritance is one word in the Greek. Just one. So, how are we going to translate that? Here's the possibilities. It could mean that we have been made an inheritance. And there is a translation that uses that, and it is the old authorized version. It is straightforward. We have been made a translation, uh, uh, an inheritance, a heritage. Now, if you have a copy of the NIV, here's what the NIV says. It simply reads, in him we also were chosen. Inheritance is not even used at all. So you see how difficult this is. Is it that we have received an inheritance? Is it that we have been made an inheritance? Or is it that we've just simply been chosen our God's allotted portion? Now, here's the good news. How many of those things are theologically true? All three. So really, it's not a huge deal if I pick one over the other. Because I would argue that in Ephesians 1, 4, uh, 3 through 14, which is about the longest sentence in the Greek in the entire Bible, in the New Testament, I would argue that all three of those are taught. You are chosen by God, verse 4 right? You are given an allotted portion by God. You are given an inheritance, First Peter, right? And even in this text a little later down. So we could argue, it, so theologically there's no reason uh, to get all bent out of shape, but here's my conclusion. Are you ready? I take all three. No, seriously. The word is in the passive voice. And when you took English, you learned active voice and passive voice. What does that mean? Well, the passive voice receives the action of the verb. So for us to be the ones receiving or obtaining an inheritance here has to be really pushed for that to become a passive idea. The passive voice lends itself either to having been made an inheritance or that we have been appointed as God's inheritance. The second thing to remember here is that there's been a continuous reference to chosen and predestined and called, which in my opinion, context drives, right? Context is king, okay? 
So in my opinion, it adds validity to the fact that the, ASV, the ASU got it right. The old standard version. In him, or in him, we have been made an inheritance. That's where I land. Okay? Well, we spend a lot of time to do that, right? But that's vitally important for how you view the rest of the text. In him also we were made a heritage. Okay, ready for the sermon? That was all free. Right? That was all free. Here it is. In, notice, notice how we have to word this then when we get to the divisions. Number one, we are God's inheritance because of our union with Christ. Do y'all remember the song we just did together? We know that in heaven, he stands. As a matter of fact, he's seated in heaven. He looks upon Christ and pardons me. There's no way to be saved unless God looks upon Christ and pardons you. So folks, the way you become a heritage of God and his inheritance is you got to be in Christ Jesus. Peter O'Brien says it well. The Christ who is at the center of God's plan to sum all things up in Christ, that's verse 10, and earth, is also the one whom we are claimed by God as his portion. You get, the, you get the drift of this? Since all things will be summed up in Christ, you've been given to Christ as a heritage because all things will be summed up in Christ. Praise God. So we can think of election and we can think of being made a heritage as synonymous. However, there's a different focus when it comes to being made a heritage. And what's that focus? We are his inheritance. He's taken us unto himself. And here's it is, folks. You belong to God. If you've been made his portion, his heritage, then you belong to God. But keep in mind, you belong because of Jesus Christ. Now, is this principle of being made a heritage or a possession of God found in the Old Testament? Because we can't translate the new apart from the old. So the new is in the old concealed, and the, new, the old is in the new revealed. That's the way the Word of God works together. We can't divorce a sentence from a paragraph, a paragraph from a pericope, a pericope from a section, a section from a chapter, a chapter from the book, and a book from the whole Bible. It's God's holy Word. So, look with me quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to find these faster than you are, and I'm going to read them. And if you miss it, you need to go back and listen to the live stream. All right? Chapter 4, verse 20. I'm glad KC. They don't play today, do they? Ah, I follow, right? As a matter of fact, we're going to use them as an example here in a few moments. Chapter 4, <laughs> verse 20 of Deuteronomy. Here's what the word of the Lord says. But the Lord has taken you... And brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Chapter 32, same book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now verse 9. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted portion. In other words, 
God's portion is his prized possession. The people of God are his own possession, his own heritage. Those are the people he loves with an everlasting love. Those are the people he protects. Those are the people he dwells in. So it's the people of God that he cuts. That's the little word for covenant with. He has set his love and affection on you. Again, remember, in Christ Jesus. To David, he would say to us, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Here's what we must understand. Look around. And I'll already tell you when you look to your left and your right and all over this church, you're not that impressive. <laughs> and I'm not either. Let's get this. Let's get something straight. We're not that, per- we're not that impressive. What is it that makes God so excited about possessing you as his heritage? Have you looked in the mirror? More importantly, have you looked into the mirror of the word of God to ask, oh God, am I perfect? Have I arrived? It's my world. Everybody's just walking through it, right? A legend in your own mind. Have have we come to grips with this? How does the Bible describe who we are as humanity? Weak, debased, lowly, even foolish. He would not want to put us on display in front of the United Nations parade. We, we not hit the top, folks. That's just the way it is. In, in, in the scriptural explanation, we are a ragtag, motley group with nothing impressing about us. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we find out why God chose the Israelites to begin with. Listen, chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen to be a people for his treasured possession. That sound familiar? Chosen as a treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Look, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. Folks, why did God choose you to be part of his heritage? Because he loved you. Why did he love you? Because he loved you. There's no other explanation for God making, taking people like us who are defined in the word of God as already. Look, when Jesus died on Calvary for you, we were ungodly. And yet he did. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. The key to seeing what makes this heritage such a prized possession is that little bitty phrase. Did you see it? At the beginning of verse 11. In who? In him. In him, that's what makes the possession so incredible. It's because you are in Jesus Christ that you are to praise God because he has made you his heritage. When God looks at his people that are his own possession, he does not see a ragtag group of sinners. He sees the perfect son of God. There is no way that God the Father can look upon mankind and pardon him or her without Jesus Christ the righteous. When the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience of the Lamb of God who never sinned. And yet was willing to be your propitiation. Was willing to satisfy the holy justice of God in your stead so that you might become God's God's heritage. Look folks, think about this. You are God's treasured possession. 
But it's not because of something in you. It is because of Christ that is in you. I'm going to preach myself happy. Amen. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. We're in him. Do you know that when the Father looks at you, he sees the exact representation of his nature? Why? Because we have the nature of Jesus given to us. If you're saved. So we are God's inheritance. You are God's allotted portion. Glory to God. How does this start in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, He is the one who blesses. Therefore, we ought to bless Him and praise Him that we are part of His heritage. Number two. Y'all did so good with that one. I think I'll do one more point. Here it is. We are God's inheritance because He has predestined us. Notice the text. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ I'm speaking I'm think, taking this as generational everybody that comes to hope in Jesus Christ right hope in Christ is the key of course there would be to the praise of his glory why are we part of God's heritage and even if you take it to mean we have been given an inheritance. Why did you get the inheritance? Which I don't think that's what it means here. I think you're, you're God's allotted portion. If that's the case, then how did you get it? You've been predestined. That's what the Bible clearly says. So either we believe that the word predestined is squarely, surely in the Bible, or we divorce it from its context and say, well, it's not in the Bible. Okay? Again, how did I start the sermon? Hard texts keep us dependent and humble before God. We say, God Almighty, help us understand. We are finite. We are limited. But we trust the Word of God above human reason. We trust the Word of God above feelings. So, how can we simply avoid this? I don't think there's any wiggle room in not understanding clearly that the Bible says that we have been predestined. Now, you've got every right in the world to define it the way you want to. But I'm going to define it the way the Bible right here tells us it's given to us. Okay? So, my point is that if Ephesians 1 will not allow you to turn into someone who sees and loves the doctrines of sovereign grace, then I don't know a chapter in the Bible that will. Because this has clearly taught, chosen by God, before the foundation of the world, predestined by God. And it's almost like Paul would say this. I've said this about five times, but in case you didn't get it, I'm going to say it one more time. Having been predestined. Perfect past. Having been predestined. Here's the, here's the question. How does predestination work? It's a good question, right? So the division is we are God's inheritance or heritage because he's predestined us, but how does it work? Well, number one on your outline, God's predestination is according to his purpose, counsel, and will. Is that not exactly what the text says to us? All of this would converge in that subject, overarching umbrella of the purpose of God. Now, does Ephesians 1 shout that God has a purpose? Does it clearly shout to us? Now, if you don't believe in the existence of God, neither do you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then I pray that God will give you ears to hear. 
That's all I can say, okay? But if you deny both of those, but if you do believe that God is God, according to the Bible, you do believe the Word of God, then it is absolutely clear that there is a convergence here with the fact that God Almighty has a purpose. As a matter of fact, chapter 3, verse 11. Don't turn, just listen. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ the Lord. (laughs) There's your eternal purpose, right? All things, again, chapter 1, verse 10, summed up in Jesus Christ. Now, do you guys have a favorite text when you encounter difficulties in life? I do. Do y'all? It's Romans 8, 28. What does the Bible say? And we know with confidence that all things work together for good to them that love God and are, wow, called according to his purpose. Gives you security in life, doesn't it? No accidents with God. No happenstance. We know all things work together for good. Good and bad. Doesn't mean it's going to work out like you like it. Make you happy. But it does mean it's going to work out the way God has planned. And we can take the light in that. So the Bible is clear that God has a purpose and a divine plan. I encourage you to turn to this one, please, and look at it in 2 Timothy Chapter 1, please look at this one. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to give you a chance to get there so you see it clearly from the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose of grace, which He gave in us, us in Christ. There's that phrase again. He gave us in Christ when? Did you know that you were given to Christ as his possession? Before the foundation of the world. I didn't make that up. That's exactly what the text says. So we're dealing with this issue of purpose. So here's the deal. When God begins to gather for himself a heritage unto himself, he does it according to his own purpose. Is that not clear from the text? Here we have it again having been predestined according to his purpose. Purpose. Now, it's one thing to claim that you have a purpose. But it's another thing to claim that you have a purpose that will not fail. Is everybody listening? It's one thing to say, I have a purpose in life. It's another thing to say, without exception, there's no way that that purpose is going to fail. Now, I mentioned KC. I must admit, I'm a Chiefs fan. All right, there's a Georgia boy that grew up 300 yards from my doorstep that's on that team, Nicole Hardiman. He drops the ball occasionally, but he's a Bowman boy. I started to say he's from the Holy Land, but I don't think Georgia's the Holy Land anymore. I actually took off one of my Georgia shirts this week, threw it on the ground, and stunk it. Ask Natalie, I did it right there in the house. Wasn't real happy at all. So here's the deal. But I'm a, I'm a Bulldog, right? But now I'm a KC fan. Here's the deal. They're, headed, they're in the playoffs, and they're looking good, right? They're waiting on who wins today to decide, lowest seed, who they're going to play next Sunday. But there's a chain of events that must take place. They've got to win that game. Then they've got to win the AFC Championship. And then they've got to go to the Super Bowl and win in order for them to fulfill their purpose. Is that a guarantee? 
you better be careful because you waited a long time for last year's. A long, long, not as long as the Falcons, but a long, long time for KC to win. Is that purpose guaranteed? No. We have all kinds of purposes that we make every single day of our lives that never come to fruition. How many of you have the purpose that you're going to be thinner in 2021? For those of you who are thin, I sympathize with you. But most of us are not. So we assume that we're going to do some things. Is that a foregone conclusion that I'm going to be thinner next year? Absolutely not. So we ask our God, how will you secure your purpose? What will secure that your plans come to fruition like you planned? It's because of the next clause. He's predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Are y'all listening? All things according to the counsel of his will. Other than this verse, Romans chapter 11, verse 36, one of my life verses. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Other than that one, this is the number one verse in the word of God that is the most comprehensive statement on God's absolute sovereignty found anywhere in the word of God. Notice this. He works all things. I got news for you. All things in the Greek is all things in the English. What does all things mean? All things. That is what the word of God says. It is God who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So, in the original Greek, it is in the emphatic position. What does that mean? It means his purpose will come to fruition. In other words, God not only has the plan, but he's got the power to work all things out where they do end with his purpose. That's what this is saying. Do you know God's purpose is not at the mercy of the devil? Oh, I can sleep at night, folks. My God has this, period. He will sum all things up in Christ. And at night, I don't worry. I go to sleep, don't I? It takes me about an hour. No, trust me. My head hits the pillow. <laughs> David said, now I lay me. God puts him to sleep. Why? Because David wasn't worried about tomorrow, and neither am I. There's chaos on every corner. It's all over our world. But God Almighty has this. He's going to unite all things in Christ. So his purpose is not at the mercy of the devil. But neither is his purpose at the mercy of human will. It never has and it never will. It's not at the mercy of your human will. If God works all things, that means all things is comprehensive. So here's the deal. There are no maverick molecules in God's universe. None. He works omnipotently. Nothing is outside of his control. And God must exert. Check this out. God must exert absolute divine sovereignty in order to bring you into his heritage. Are y'all listening? God must exert absolute sovereignty in order to bring his people into his possession. Why would I say such a thing? Why? Because we're all stiff-necked sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Let's just think about that for a moment. What does the Bible tell you about your condition? No one seeks God. It says our minds are darkened. It says that we're ignorant of truth. It says that the natural man cannot discern the things of God. 
So God must exert sovereign, absolute sovereign rule in order to bring us into his family. So here's the deal. It is only the God who works all things together after the counsel of his will that actually has the power and the ability to predestine you in such a way that you end up being a part of the heritage of God. He's the only one that can do it. Now stop and think about this for a moment. What all did God manipulate and guide and move and direct and do run-ins around in order for you to be in the place where you would bow your knee to the king? What did God have to do? Folks, he works all things. I don't know what to say other than I'm so thankful that God put me in a Christian home. And I heard the gospel over and over and over again. Well, you were just blessed. No, God put me there. Last time I checked, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a choice in the matter if I was born to feral burden or not. God did that. But he put me in the place where I would hear the word of God. And eventually I would bow my knee to the king. Some of you have a testimony that you were the lowest of sinners. You, you did everything possible known to man. Right? You would put yourself in the category of Paul who said, I was the chief of sinners. And yet, God Almighty worked all things. It might have been a friend that knew Jesus that had enough gumption to say to you, man, you got to believe in Jesus. Maybe it was a gospel track. Maybe it was a book that somebody stuck in your hand. I don't know what it was, but I'm telling you, the Bible says that God has absolute sovereign control and he led you to the place where you would bow the knee and believe the gospel. That is what thus saith the Lord says. And we're not allowed to change it. He did all things according to the counsel of his will. Did y'all know that God's counsel and will are both unchanging? We talk about the doctrine of the constancy of God, which are immutability. What's that mean? God doesn't change. Allow me to show you, not personal opinion, but what the Bible says. Y'all do know we have a Bible, right? All right, chapter 33 of Psalm. Psalm 33. It's called the book of Psalms, but when you deal with chapters, it should be called Psalm, this, that, and the other. One, two, three, four, five, right? Psalm 33, verse 10. By the way, this is a wonderful text of Scripture for us in our day. Listen, beginning in verse 10 of 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. That means all the nations of the world can make their plans. He frustrates the plans of peoples. But the counsel of the Lord, say it, stands forever. Our God's counsel does not change. It stands forever. And then the Bible says this. The plans of his heart to all generations. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. God's will is sovereign. God's counsel is sovereign. He has his counsel that stands forever. But his will is also unchanging. Job chapter 40. Don't you love this book? We're going to look at Job 40 and Job 42 just very quickly. In the book of Job, you have a discourse. In other words, if you looked at it as a whole, you got a prologue, 
This is how we got to where we are. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the enemy begins to mediate out on him whatever God would allow. Are y'all listening? That's what happens. But then you have dialogue. The three friends say, Job, you sinned against God. Live with it. Right? Y'all remember that counsel? Just admit it. You're a sinner. And then at the conclusion, you've got an epilogue. What does that mean? The conclusion of the matter. So, in these cycles of discourse, Job says, I know that you're God and you exist and you're there. But if I could just stand before you, I might can make my case that I'm innocent. Y'all know that? Yeah, he says that. And then he comes back and says, man, even if I plunged myself in snow water and washed all my clothes, I couldn't stand in trial with you one day, God, because you're God and I'm not, right? So here's his three friends, you're guilty. And then finally God speaks. And he does not say, Job, I'm sorry, I was wrong. He does not say, Job, it was all a mistake. I had this deal going on with the devil, and I hate you got caught up in the mess. What does he say? What was God's response? Well, here's one of them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Read the book of Job. Where were you when I made the Pleiades? Where were you when I expanded the universe? Job, where were you, right? Here's a good one, because I like fishing. Where were you when I went out fishing? And I took a hook, and I put it in Leviathan's jaw, and I led him wherever I wanted to. Just like in Jonah. Where were you, Job? Can you do that, Job? God's response was simple, wasn't it, folks? Job, I am God and you are not. Get over it. That literally was God's response. Now, listen to chapter 40, verse 3, and let's see if Job got it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer? I will lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, and I will proceed no further. Right? In other words, here's Job before an awesome God. Can't say another word. But notice chapter 42. This is awesome, and this is what... We need to hear today. Are y'all looking at it? Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now folks, either that means no purpose or it doesn't. It has to mean that, right? Job learned with his discourse with Almighty God, you can do all things, God, and there's no purpose that can be thwarted. In other words, his Counsel is unchanging, and his will is unchanging. Clearly taught in the Word of God. In other words, you cannot derail God's purpose. It will not fail. God is totally free in his will to do whatever his good pleasure asks him to do. God's will is nothing else than God himself willing. God's will is God willing. His purpose, his counsel, his will are omnipotent and without frustration. God's will is the primary and supreme cause of all things. How does predestination work? The God of heaven uses his wisdom, counsel, will to save sinners. And that's God Almighty's call. And God does it. Number two, God's predestination is to the praise of his glory. Don't you love this? 
How many times have we read this phrase? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. In him we have become an inheritance. Now if you read this grammatically, in him we have a... In him we have been made an inheritance. And skip down and remove all the filler. Who were the first to hope in Christ that we might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, the purpose, ultimate purpose of why God saved you was that you would be a heritage unto God and that you yourself would be to the praise of his glory. That's what the text says. When we say sola de gloria, that's what we mean. All the glory goes to God alone, right? And you, know, you understand, folks, God didn't save you because he was lonely. God saved you in order that you might bring him praise. That you would be to him praise. So the goal and glory of God's purpose in choosing for himself a people is secured by his own absolute will and sovereign power with the ultimate purpose of bringing glory and praise to God himself. That's the truth of Scripture. This means as his possession... We are called to praise God and give Him glory. Does this mean something for us on the Lord's Day? For most of us, worship ends on Sunday. I shouldn't be that cruel, should I? For many of us, we have the depiction that worship is on Sunday. And we hype everything up, we get all the loud instruments, we blow smoke out of the ground, we do all these things. But on Monday, Jesus is not on your heart or your lips. I believe Monday through Saturday are to be built up with you worshiping Christ all week so that when we come together as a family of God, we praise God Almighty. Why? Because he has made you his heritage. Folks, do you see the connection? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who made us his heritage. (laughs) That's why we praise him. Because he made us his, his heritage in Christ Jesus the Lord. Glory to God. Did you know that angels cannot even sing of redeeming love? But you and I can. If you've been saved by grace through faith. Now angels can sing worthy as a lamb, but not as people are things that have been redeemed. Do you understand that God has saved you in order for you to be his heritage? So that you would be to his praise and his glory. Is this not shouted in Ephesians 1? It is shouted, folks. We ought to be praising people. We ought to be people who glorify God. We ought to praise Him. We ought to thank Him. We look at times like you've been coming off a bottle of pickle juice. And we act like that. More importantly, sometimes looks can be deceiving, right? But I think you ought to, in a sense, wear your faith. You should look like you're redeemed in your actions and your attitudes and the way you look instead of looking like you've just come off a bottle of pickle juice. How about this? We look like we've been stuck in formaldehyde for several years. We do at times. We act as if Christ did not die for our sins, that he was not raised up from glory, for glory, and he's not coming again. We live like those three things. Folks, don't you realize that we live on the right side of all of those? The church for years at times lives like we're on the wrong side of the resurrection and Pentecost. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ died and rose again. He was ascended into heaven. He's on his throne. He's not applying for the job. He is God. And he's also coming again. In power and glory. And we need to live like it. In other words, folks, I know this is hard for Americans to believe. But if you are saved, I don't care if you're an American 
or whoever you are. Because God doesn't see race. He saves by grace. And no matter who you are in this world, God saved you for one ten ultimate purpose. And that is for you to be praised to his glory. The text says it. This is why he saved you. So should not all of our life look like worship? Do we just focus in on the word on Sunday only? Do, do we just come in and sing a few songs only on Sunday? You see how that misses the mark? You've been made and saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus in order for you to praise God and bring him glory. There's one little final phrase here that I love. See it? Hope in Christ. To the praise of his glory. Notice what he says. For the first to have hope, to hope in Christ. How are you saved? Well, certainly you can't be saved unless your hope is in Christ. Right? So I take this as generational. Meaning that you've got the ones who first heard the gospel who got saved. And then everybody else in accordion effect who trusted Christ and got saved have the same hope. It's hope in Christ Jesus. Folks, listen to me. That's not the same kind of hope that you would say, I hope KC wins the Super Bowl. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation in the very promise of God. Jesus Christ is our hope. He's our only hope. He is our singular only hope. I want to remind you of that. Butses, is that a word? Perhapses are killers of peace and comfort. That's not what we have as believers. But maybe this. I hope this. I wish that. No, in the Bible, it is confident expectation. I pray that you allow this text to steep, soak in your mind and in your heart. Notice verse 13. We'll see it next week. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. Folks, there's only one way to be saved. And I know this is clearly teaching two things. The divine sovereignty of God to save sinners. And the human responsibility to believe the gospel. I don't care if you believe in election from your radiator to your tailpipe. If you don't believe the gospel, you're not saved. And that's just not believing the facts. It is being transformed by who Christ is. Baptists love to talk about, well, 30 years ago, I got that right, preacher. Well, I'm telling you, if you're not getting it right today, you didn't get it right back then. That's just the way it is. I repented 30 years ago. Have you repented since? Not really. Well, if you didn't repent back then, then. Because you, you folks, you know this if you're saved, right? So here's the deal. This morning, I'm telling you that no matter who you are, if you put your hope in Christ, you will be saved. And the whole time you're coming to him, you'll find out that it was Christ who first came to you. Amen? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does Ephesians 1.11 give you any stability in this world? I don't know how y'all feel about that, but man, it's rough in the great U.S. of A. right now, isn't it? But does Ephesians 1.11 not give you stability? In him we have obtained an inheritance, or in him we've been made an inheritance. Folks, it, it, it should be the stability factor. Your life's end ends up being God's glory. Folks, I don't know what you think about that, but that changes my life every day. 
When I know that the end result is that my life will bring God glory, that makes a difference in the way I live, the way I think, the way I act, whole nine yards. Is everybody with me? It gives you meaning and it gives you purpose every single day, no matter if you're on the mountain or in the valley. To God be the glory. Great God, we thank you for the preaching and the hearing of the word. God, only you can cause people to hear and embrace the truth. Only you. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. They're only spiritually discerned. God, would you give people spiritual eyes and ears to hear the word today? To think back on what they've heard. And God, may you help us in our day to think about what an awesome God you are and to cling to the fact that your word says you're sovereign, that you're absolutely sovereign, that your will doesn't change, nor does your counsel, and you're going to do all things according to your purpose. God, we need to hear that as your people. We trust in you. God, would you work in hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a great song this one is. When we get down to one particular line, I hope you sing it with vigor and praise to God. Let's sing together. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. That's good. His wounds have paid my ransom. Oh, that's a good song. Wish I'd have written that thing, right? What a song. Praise God. All right. Uh, Jim, Christy, Abigail, and Nathan. Uh, kind of come down this way a little bit. Y'all kind of hung under the roof back there. <laughs> All right. This is Jim and Christy and Abigail. And Nathan is in Children's Church. But all four of them had trusted, have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord. They've all four fallen believers' baptism. And they're uniting in church membership with First Baptist Church Ozark. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. So, Jim, Christy, Abigail, Nathan Meadows. We welcome them to our church family. The coronavirus has caused a lot of things to be done differently. You get that? All right. But we pray that our God, who controls all things, will put an end to this virus. Which reminds us that it didn't get here outside of his watchful eye. And he's even in control of COVID-19. We believe that as the people of God. All right? Well, God bless each one of you. We trust and pray you have a wonderful Lord's Day. I know we have women's Bible studies that are on today. And just pray that God will use the teaching of his word. Amen? God bless you. Amen. God bless you. <laughs>